was almost thrown in front of a train. During my first trip in South America, I bumped into a bunch of guys who had guns. I was almost killed. Most human beings for me were a threat. I would always be on my guard, ready to attack or defend myself, stressed out, ready to snap at any moment. All those behaviors and reactions were totally out of control for me. So I was a reflex machine. After two episodes of cancer, I realized that it didn't make any sense anymore for me to live my life the way I was living it. I found myself very aggressive with people. Where science has led to some progress is essentially behavioral neuroscience. So there's been a number of techniques, approaches that have been developed that we found can reduce stress, can reduce anxiety. Consciousness and insights from a neuroscientist. With Professor Pierre Gertin, we'll discuss his new book and explore current neuroscience behind consciousness. Please subscribe. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bernie Chats. We're here with Dr. Pierre Gertin, neuroscientist. He's written a few books and recently launched a new book on dealing with fear and explains some of his experiences and goes into the neurological aspects of that. He's also been a personal friend for a number of years, We've shared some interesting experiences like skydiving and traveling around Europe. So it's a real pleasure to have you here, Pierre. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Hi, and, thanks for uh, having me, Bernie. Would you like to start off by maybe expanding a little bit on your background and and then we'll get into the book. And then I have a list of questions that I've sourced from listeners. Yeah, sounds good. I'm a neuroscientist, so I obtained a bachelor degree in uh, phys ed to get started at the University of Montreal. Then I did a master degree at the University of Quebec in neurophysiology. I did a PhD degree in, in uh, neurophysiology as well in motor control and restoration of unconsciously controlled uh, motor behaviors. Um, so now you've, you've written a new book. That's my fourth book. This one it describes part of my life associated with problems I've, that I've had that have kept me away from being relatively conscious about my behaviors, about a number of things that have happened to me, created fears, fears of other human beings and uh, psychological pain through a number of other experiences, mainly diseases, I find ways to overcome those psychological problems to, uh, in the end, increase my uh, level of relative consciousness. Great. Let's put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had the pleasure of uh, reading a middle to final draft. My description of it, I guess, would be that, that you go through some of your experiences in life and how fear and a lack of consciousness played into that and dissect it from a neurophysiological point of view. I think we all deal with fears. I mean, it's part of the human condition, isn't it? To deal with fear. Yeah, definitely. You know? yeah. That's why we have the sympathetic nervous system, right? Yep. In, in this case, we have somebody who has um, the neurophysiological background to dissect it. Uh, and you're being vulnerable and explaining some of your fears, understanding how we deal with them, I think is a key part or a very important part of developing a strategy to deal with them, right? Mm -hmm. If we talk about fear, we have to realize that physical fear, which is the one associated with the uh, sympathetic nervous system, right. 
is not at all the same as the psychological fear okay. system. Actually, psychological fear is something we don't know much about the neurophysiological basis. Maybe start off with providing us with a broad overview of what is neuroscience? And that's a question from Gaetan. Neuroscience is a field that belongs to the larger field that is the life science or the life sciences. So it's one of them. So among the life sciences, you, you, may, uh, you may find the uh, biochemistry, um, molecular endocrinology, biophysics, microbiology, anatomy, physiology. So those are all disciplines or research areas that belong to the life sciences. And neuroscience is one of them, uh, mm -hmm. but it's the only one that focuses specifically and uh, entirely on question about the uh, nervous system. So the nervous system, just a reminder, it's uh, composed of the brain and the spinal cord. That's the central nervous system. And you have the nerves, the nerves that establish connections between the central nervous system and the organs, including muscles or the guts and things like that. So those are called the peripheral nerves or the peripheral nervous system. So all of those are things that neuroscientists work on because there's a lot to uh, learn about uh, not necessarily the gross anatomy of the nervous system, but um, we're more into the details of different pathologies or even physiologically how things are working. There's much to do. There's a, a lot to do. So that's what neuroscience is compared with the other uh, life sciences. When I first started to get interested in, in topics associated more with consciousness rather than unconsciousness, because most of my career has been uh, as focused on trying to understand uh, unconsciously mediated motor behaviors. So for instance, in spinal cord injured people, we found drugs that can restore involuntary walking episodes. Um, so that was one part of my uh, research, but I, uh, now I wanted to get more into uh, consciousness-driven or mediated behaviors, but behaviors meaning also everything we, we think, everything we say, and all of behaviors that we can have throughout the day. My first problem when I got into that new research program for me was the question of semantic, actually. The word consciousness is, is not poorly defined. There are just so many different definitions. So actually, I was thinking of asking you, Bernie, what is, does consciousness mean for you? Just as an example. Um, in this current contemporary way of describing it, now I would say consciousness to me is being aware of what my body and mind are doing and then also uh, the actions that are being taken in conjunction with that. And being aware and in the moment. To me, that's what I would say is consciousness. Whereas before uh, this contemporary way of using the term, I would have said simply not being unconscious. Yeah, those are two very good definitions that are, that are used actually by different groups of people. So your second definition, so everything that is not unconscious, is very close to what uh, anesthesiologists 
will use as a definition. So if you're not unconscious, you're automatically conscious for them. So of course, they are interested in, in putting people asleep for surgery or something like that. So, so for them, they are not talking about higher consciousness level or the kind of consciousness you can stimulate by meditation and all that. For them, it has a totally different meaning. If you ask also another group of people like teenagers, what is consciousness? They will automatically think about self-consciousness or self-awareness. And for them, it means more um, being shy and worrying about other what other people think. Right. So again, that's another definition that is used by a certain group of people. And, and that's probably the, ties into the, the term self-conscious. Yeah. Also, if we think as uh, psychiatrists, again, that's another definition they'll be using. For them, they don't refer that often to consciousness per se, but they will think more about self-consciousness and problem associated with schizophrenia. So if, if you recognize that you're in you, or if you cannot recognize that you are in you, then you may be perhaps in two other people at the same time in your head. So the personality problems. So for them, again, that's a slightly different definition. So, so for researchers, there are an increasing number of neuroscientists who are interested in consciousness and the neurological basis of consciousness. The main problem they encounter is definitions. What does it mean? And because if you don't know exactly what you're talking about, what it means, what are the limits of your definition, then how can you poke into the brain mechanism underlying it? So it's very, uh, I think it's a semantic problem to get started with. Is there a better term then? I came up with a definition that suits the type of research I do. Sure. If we look at the definition of uh, John Kabat-Zinn, um, he came up with something that is not that dissimilar, but is simpler. <laughs> but it's essentially about um, being in the present moment without being judgmental about what's happening and mm -hmm. trying to sense as many things as possible about your body and external stimuli. It's, it's more or less a, something like that. There are so many definitions. It's, it's a big problem. Makes sense, especially if you have a team, because you all have to be on the same page. So therefore, definitions are very important. Exactly. And the definition in your mind, then you can forge ahead, right? Yeah. But if you're team members have a different definition in their heads, then you could find yourself in misalignment. Exactly. Even for reading articles, either in popular magazines or scientific magazines, one of the first questions you should ask yourself, what kind of consciousness are they talking about? Because then you can better understand what they are trying to put forward as an idea. So that's very important. Are mindfulness and consciousness different? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> I think there's a, there are many misconceptions about that. Mindfulness has become a trendy word, a trendy uh, expression to use. And for some people, it means uh, everything and nothing. <laughs> to keep it simple, uh, mindfulness essentially, and you can read all you want on the internet about it, it's a technique, uh, essentially a technique of relaxation. That's basically what it is. It is aimed at reducing stress in people either who are uh, 
hospitalized uh, for uh, cancer treatment or just find themselves stressed out and suffering anxiety. It's been clearly shown to be, uh, to be effective for those people if properly supervised uh, medically. Consciousness is not a technique, it's a brain function, at least from a neuroscientist point of view. For other groups, such as, I don't know, uh, Buddhist monks, it would depend who you talk with. If you talk with religious groups or Jews or Christians, then that's, they probably think it has nothing to do with the brain. But from a neuroscientific point of view, it's a brain function and it's associated with activity specifically in networks that have been identified in the brain. So in that way, there are two really different things. Just to summarize, in the case of mindfulness, it's a technique of relaxation. In the case of consciousness, it's a brain function. Okay. And so what's an example of how somebody would use mindfulness in therapy or in recovery from a medical circumstance or, or an injury, et cetera? Well, the, the protocol is pretty much standard and, and relatively simple, not necessarily simple to use, but simple to understand. It's 45 minutes of meditation that is essentially composed of body scan techniques or mm -hmm. uh, breathing awareness techniques. And that gets your mind away from unconscious thoughts, thoughts that may lead to stress for you. So it's a way to escape from all this turmoils in your head, mm -hmm. right? And that leads to a relaxation. Just thinking about your breathing, just thinking about uh, body scanning is essentially going from one group of muscles to another one. Thinking about tension in your muscle, the position of your muscle. Is it contracted? Is it not contracted? Uh, you can play with that also, contracting it or not. Essentially, you're focusing on things happening inside your body, but not inside your mind, right? So you're, you're trying to be in connection with your sensations. Sensations so related with breathing are with... Uh, proprioception, which is muscle activity. So would it be fair to say that that mindfulness is a way of alleviating um, fear, anxiety, stress, and um, uncertainty, let's say, about the past and the future, to try and alleviate the physiological effects of those thoughts? Yeah, exactly. So stress caused by whatever happens in your head that is out of control. I mean by out of control, that is unconsciously occurring and that leads to stress for you. You might have recurrent thoughts about, uh, I don't know, being killed. If you don't put consciousness into that, you keep thinking about that thoughts all day long or regularly and that leads to some stress or that could be uh, totally something else like being afraid of being in contact with other people having yeah well, which a lot of people are dealing with now with covid <laughs> yeah but, but <laughs> for other reasons <laughs> i think i think primarily of somebody with the example of let's say you know you have a family and everything and all of a sudden you're you're down with with a serious illness uh cancer or whatever the situation is then obviously you might end up in a spiral thinking about, oh, what if I would have done things differently? I, I did things I shouldn't have done in the past that didn't uh, respect my health. What's going to happen to my family in the future? How is this going to affect me? Am I going to live? Am I going to die? So there's a lot of places mm -hmm. for the mind to go, a lot of 
sort of spirals, negative spirals to go down for the mind. And mm -hmm. so bringing ourselves back to the present and focusing on our body and solely that main function, I could see how that would help alleviate and relax the body. Yeah, it gets your head away from those problems at least 45 minutes per day. You have <laughs> yeah. to do it. And that, well, it's funny to say, but 45 minutes per day away from those crazy thoughts, that's mm -hmm. enough to reduce significantly stress and mm -hmm. the effect of stress on your health or even right. the effect of stress on the effectiveness of medication because it's been originally developed by uh, John Kabat-Zinn specifically for that to improve the effects of therapy mm -hmm. because people who are stressed out, who are constantly concerned by their conditions, they respond less properly or less efficiently to medications, to their treatment. So being more relaxed, practicing that technique is a good way for the effectiveness of some therapies, actually. So that was the original goal of uh, Kabat-Zinn was to, to help cancer patients with their conditions and, and making sure they would respond optimally uh, in an optimal way to the chemotherapy, for instance. So Pierre, are you saying that there's a generally accepted practice for, the med for medical treatment to include a 45-minute daily mindfulness practice? No, it doesn't look like that yet. Massachusetts University Medical Center is practicing it in some departments because that's where the mindfulness technique has been developed. Other than that, I think there is about a thousand properly trained instructors to guide you through the learning and the, the practice of, of the mindfulness technique. So elsewhere, I mean, outside the U.S., and most of those trainers are in the U.S., so outside the U.S. and outside the Boston area, I'm not sure it's, it is that well accepted or used regularly. I, I doubt it because there's not enough trained individuals for that. So on the subject of, of reducing stress and anxiety, etc., what are the best forms of meditation or best practices for resetting your mind. And let's, why don't we stick with that thought of doing 45 minute pra daily practice, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And what, what, what would be the best way to utilize that 45 minutes in your opinion, from a neurological point of view? It depends what you're looking for. Up to now, we, we talked about mindfulness and mindfulness right. is a technique of relaxation. So if your goal is to be more relaxed, just to be more relaxed or to get some benefits on your health, then uh, the MBSR technique that, that we often call the mindfulness technique or the John Kabat-Zinn's technique is the one because at least it's been clearly shown to work and there's no doubt about it. As I said, there, there are other studies that were done afterwards that showed it's not any better than anxiolytics or uh, regular uh, exercising or things like that, but it works. What does the MBSR stand for? And I, I gather that's the, the mind-body scan and the, and the breathing. breathing awareness breathing technique. technique. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so you can do one or the other or switch in between the two. All those two techniques are part of the MBSR approach, which stands for a mindfulness-based stress reduction approach. Ah. Simply. So that would be 
a method of choice to reduce uh, stress. But if your goal is to increase a global rise of your awareness level of your, or your consciousness, then maybe other methods would be would be better at least such as transcendental meditations you know those monks who use that um um that's so repeating this sound uh, over long periods of time according to them uh, helps someone reaching higher levels of consciousness otherwise well if you're interested in reducing stress or want to increase awareness levels also you may look into a relatively new trend or is something that is trendier more than ever it's meditation through movements so Mm -hmm. that comprises the tai chi the yoga pilates so you're working you're improving uh, your physical condition while doing some forms of meditation at least Mm -hmm. so you you may get dual effects because through exercise training, you can activate those uh, brain areas that are associated with the expression of consciousness, the same way that some forms of meditation can do as well. So you're using two approaches, physical activity and meditation to increase activities in those brain networks associated with uh, consciousness expression. So that those methods are, are, are quite good as well. If you're someone extremely busy and your main problem with all those methods is to find that 45 minutes in your schedule, then we came up recently with a new method that is called the ICAL method, which stands from intermittent consciousness anytime, all day long. So you don't need to stop and undertake a meditation session. You simply put some consciousness into everything you do. So you can Mm -hmm. meditate and think about what you're doing while you're driving your car, listening to someone, talking to someone, washing dishes, etc. So that could be an interesting approach for people who are perhaps too busy to find uh, the time to practice meditation on a regular basis with more traditional approaches. Yeah. And this is something that we, uh, you and I have talked about before is the, the idea of just being conscious of what you're doing at the time, eating meditation. So being conscious of the food you're eating and what's going on around you and walking meditation, being conscious of your surroundings, the sound, the wind, etc., bringing you into the present. Yeah, and, and ultimately, it goes way beyond that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Starting with being conscious of what's going on in you, it's one thing that could, that could start with uh, breathing awareness. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. If you think about it, being fully conscious, although I think it's uh, utopic to think that it's reachable, but uh, being fully conscious would mean being aware of what's going on everywhere in you in uh, around you uh, well close enough so that your senses can can detect what's going on around you but also way above that using your knowledge your memory of what we know about the universe actually so Mm. realizing being aware that you're in a planet that is turning around the sun that is a small part of of a universe from which we know very little. Mm -hmm. We know there are 200 billion 
stars in our galaxy and 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. And wow. some, astroph some astrophysicists think that's only one tenth of what there is left to know. Being aware of all that simultaneously with what's going on in you and close by to you, I think that's where it started being interesting. Put things in perspective. Yeah, I was just going to use the word perspective, yeah. right? It's interesting. I've been listening to some podcasts called uh, about Stoicism. The Daily Stoic mm -hmm. is the podcast. Uh, really interesting stuff. And I've never been one for Greek mythology, Roman Empire stuff. You know, I just haven't paid attention to that in general. But it really puts things in perspective when you think about how long the Roman Empire was and how many people were of importance in that. Like yep. three or four, <laughs> you know, yeah. something like that, right? So the 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 thought that we're going to make a big mark on the world is really um, uh, the minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, knowing as much as we can about what's known, and that that includes history. History yep. that includes uh, what the basic about uh, astrophysics, about mathematics, about a number of, of different areas. I think that's essential to hope. Uh, reaching a high consciousness level. So we often, we often talk about awareness and consciousness and limits it to what's going on inside us, being in the present moment. But I think it's way, it goes way beyond that. It's when you look at things with different perspective and different angles and different lens right. power, then you see what's going on or the truth uh, as it is Dans la réalité des choses, and uh, right, and in the reality of it, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we're we're often limits our interpretation or our vision of things to only our five senses. Oh, mm -hmm. I see uh, that motorbike coming by. It's making a lot of noise. It's aggressing. It's uh, so you're only limiting your perspective to those. Uh, immediate stimulations. But in the end, if you look at things differently, you may think that this is not significant. The sound you just heard is not significant. And you don't have to be annoyed for that. It doesn't make sense. And, but you have to constantly change lens and look at things with different perspectives. We talked about monks and, and the, the high level with which monks practice consciousness and mindfulness, I guess. What have we learned from monks about meditation and consciousness? Well, Buddhist monks in particular, they are really into increasing their level of compassion. That's, that's again, something else. Hmm. But um, doing that, they practice meditation a lot, and that increases their level of consciousness. I think there's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been that many clinical studies with monks but there's been a few very interesting ones and one of them that was published relatively recently showed that monks that have been practicing for uh, a few decades so that's more than 10,000 hours of uh, meditation practice if you take that group and the group of non-monks <laughs> of normal mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. who haven't been meditating uh, practicing meditation you see that the brain of those monks have been able to retain a maximum of gray matter. I need to explain a number of things <laughs> to make sense out of all this. 
That'd be great. When we get older, most people are aware that we're losing neurons, right? For the last hundred years, we've heard a lot that human beings after the age of 20 start losing 1% of their brain every year. That has been the subject of debate. And uh, there's this one thing most scientists would agree about, not necessarily that there's this 1% loss of neurons per year after age 20, but there's definitely a reduction in brain size, specifically the gray matter over time, uh, because neurons are shrinking. There's less neurotransmitter for communication between neurons. So there are small, smaller dendrites. Dendrites are like the branches uh, of a tree, okay? And the neuron would be somewhere in between and the stem or the main part of the tree would be the axon. That's a anatomy crash course. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so they agree that there's a, a significant reduction in the gray matter of our brain. And in the group of monks that is well experienced in meditation, has a vast experience meditating, they found a significant difference. So they can keep up that gray matter volume more than normal people. That, that's one thing. It doesn't say much than that. It's interesting if you can keep your gray matter volume, so the size of your neurons as it was 10 years or 20 years earlier. It's a good news, but we don't know more about it. Something very interesting also that has been found recently, very recently, actually last year, they found that among those uh, couple of networks that have been associated with uh, consciousness expressions, such as the NCC, the DMN, the VAT, the DAT, they found out that for, um, for monks, they are able to remove that anti-correlated activity between the DMN and the DAT. I know it's, it's a bit tricky, a bit complicated, but it means essentially that with practicing meditation for several years help you to get greater activity in brain areas that are important for consciousness. In comparison, normal people who practice, who have been practicing meditation for just a couple of months or a couple of years, they will get activity that can increase in one of those networks. And that will have as a consequent a reduction in another part of those networks underlying consciousness. So there's a constant battle between those networks. But for monks, that battle disappears. Wow. To find inner peace and, and, to, and serenity, uh, of course, it doesn't help to be judgmental about everything that you're uh, experiencing, sensing, and that right. includes thinking. I think most philosophers, meditation guru, or other experts agree on that, being judgmental about what you're experiencing, uh, what you're going through is, is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't go as far as saying that it automatically creates uh, stress, pain, and so on, but it's not, yeah, it's generally not a good idea to be judgmental about what's happening. For instance, I went to the museum with my, my daughter this afternoon, and it's quite chilly in, in Belgium these days. It's, it was 14 degrees and raining as okay. often in Belgium. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we, much we, like our weather in Vancouver. 
<laughs> yeah. And we got out of the museum. She said, oh, gee, it's so cool. It's, it's, it's raining. It's terrible. And I said, it's, it's just rain. It's, uh, you don't have to say it's terrible. Sometimes yeah. I try to, to add some perspective to what is going on and what she's saying. Hopefully she, she can, she, one day she will understand that what I meant by that. But, but all this to say that, uh, yeah, that was an example where she was unnecessary judgmental about what was happening. Rain is not a bad thing, a good thing. It's, it's, it's just rain and you will, right. you will dry your clothes after that. The fact that it's 14 degrees, it, it's not bad or it's not painful. Or, so it's all your interpretation that makes it a bad thing or a good thing. So that's not necessary and it leads you nowhere, actually. Well, and I, and I think we're conditioned that way a lot. Yeah, so the yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Present the weather report and say, we're going to have some terribly cold weather. And depending what you're doing, I mean, if you're sailing, then the wind is a nice thing, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah exactly. Right. Everything is, is relative, yeah. It, it is. So I find yeah. myself doing that with, you know, with my partner and with other people at times and, and saying, hey, it's mother nature, you know, mother nature's sending us a little water and, and a little wind and, you know, just feel it. It's exactly alive, right? Yeah. yeah. It's another type of stimulation. And I mean, if it's a stimulation that hurts you physically, really like being burned by a fire or something like that, that that's something else. But you don't have to be judgmental and to be mad against that fire. You're being burned. You, you can just realize it and you do what you have to do to get out of the problem. So Pierre... I, I told you I made a list of questions that were submitted by listeners, and I'm going to try and, and intersperse them in here when they, when they make sense. So here's one that was from Wanda. Why are people so fearful? If I refer myself to a number of uh, uh, leaders on that question, it's essentially because the ego, so the part of you, the part of us that is uh, unconsciously driving our behaviors and uh, our thoughts as well. The ego wants to survive no matter what. When you find a stressful situation that might put your life in danger or that might reduce your quality of life, then your ego is, is threatened. It's as if the ego always wants to stay away from death, stay away from problem, wants to feel good and be better than other people. So whenever you're encountering problems, the ego finds it stressful. About everything can be perceived and can be considered as a problem as far as the ego is concerned. So that's where the conscious part of your brain should ideally come into play as often as possible to uh, counterbalance what the ego naturally wants from you to be always better, to have always more money, to have a longer life, to all right. those sort of things. So it's sort of an innate survival instinct, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In a few yeah. words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My doctor, um, he's pretty philosophical and quite an interesting gentleman. He put it this way one time he said the mind is a problem solving machine he says and if you don't have a problem your mind will create one to work on right i would just add to that that that's the part of your mind associated with the ego for me the mind is any mental activities uh occurring in your brain so it's, it's very large it includes 
the ego mediated activities so unconsciousness and the non-ego related activities so consciousness uh, per se so yeah. it's always a fight between the two and that's why it's not that easy to be conscious you always have your ego that tries to fight back to fight back <laughs> and to gain over you for the next thought the next behavior etc and is is that function is that located in in the reptilian brain or the limbic system or um or is it more and more we realize that there are a fair number of regions in the brain where unconsciousness and consciousness are uh, expressed it's really a collaboration and interactions between a number of areas that have been found also to be involved in other functions but when they collaborate in a certain manner that underlies mainly conscious behaviors or unconscious behaviors there are parts of the thalamus that are involved the amygdala the hypothalamus so there are a number of regions that have have been studied for other reasons before but like pretty much any area of the body or the brain and the spinal cord each single areas or center or nucleus is not specifically associated with one function it is often involved in different functions depending on how it's talking with other regions unfortunately it's much more complex than we used to think because if we go back 400 years ago one of the first who thought that consciousness but back then we used the word mainly soul was Descartes Jean René Descartes in France and he was among the first to propose that a region in the brain could be responsible for consciousness or for the expression of life itself and movement and all that so it was the pineal gland that was one of the regions today most of the researchers don't agree that it's a, an important area of the brain involved in consciousness expression but it all started with his uh, proposal that the brain was responsible for the soul so the soul is no longer a term used by scientists or or, or researchers but back then it was one of the first word used to describe uh, what may distinguish us from other uh, form of, uh, of life. So what do they use instead of soul? Where did they replace that word? A few uh, decades later, we started to use the word consciousness just a little bit, but it's mainly in the uh, 20th centuries that researchers have used the word uh, consciousness instead of uh, soul. Of course, soul and spirit are still words that are used by some group of people, uh, such as uh, religious people, uh, for instance. But more and more, there's a clear distinction being made bet between what could be a soul if that exists uh, by the way there's no reasonable evidence that a soul or a spirit exists but we have on the other hand evidence that uh, consciousness uh, indeed exists and, and consciousness uh, uh, exists so what would you say is the difference between the soul and consciousness because i know you and i discussed this about 20 years ago we had a discussion about the belief system and the, whether we have a soul and the body's energy so what would you say is the difference between having a soul and experiencing consciousness i mean the definition is different because if we talk to a religious leader to most religious leaders they're going to say that the soul or the spirit is something immaterial, which is not the case with consciousness. 
something immaterial that survives death and lived in the afterlife. More or less, that's the, the main definition associated oh, okay. most of the time with soul and, and spirit. And that's something that drives uh, life itself, therefore movement in, uh, in a human body or in an animal as well, depending on who you're talking with. Uh, depend, some philosophers think that souls and spirits are only something related with humans and other things. It's all living organisms that have some form of soul and spirits. Like the native people used to think and, and still think that they are spirits in all living forms right in trees and animals and human beings so in one case you are dealing with something that is non-material immaterial that is not tangible is uh, is right. not uh has no neurological basis and with consciousness you're dealing more with something that doesn't survive death that doesn't live in the afterlife and, and is totally attached to the body it's part of the body it's part of the brain so with the, with a soul there's there's nothing we can use to measure it and to, to to see that it's tangible and and with with consciousness it's actual activity is it electrical activity yes or it's electrical and neurochemical neurochemical yeah. electric uh, activity in in our neurophysiology yeah is it my, I, i'm a that would be that would be the best way to to separate them uh in just a few words yeah so you mentioned a little while ago you mentioned plants and the environment and some people believe that there's a consciousness or some kind of activity there that i guess communicates right mm -hmm. I, i was on vacation last week and we took a hike through the old growth forests on the west coast And um, my cousin uh, was reading a book called this, I think it was called The Secret Life of Trees. And she was giving me a synopsis of it and explaining how the trees talk to each other and they make room for each other if they're growing yeah. and all this kind of stuff. That's so fascinating, yeah. in your opinion, do trees and ecosystems have a consciousness that can be measured? Um, I know it's not your, your specific well, area, but what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, of course, we we would have to stretch our definition of consciousness because the one we're using for uh, human beings, as, as you just uh, pointed out, is essentially associated with the amount of uh, electrical activities in some parts of the brains, the amount of uh, neurochemical release and all that in some parts of the brains, and that can be measured quantitatively. Of course, trees have no brain. So that's, that's a bad start if you want to make comparison. If you're willing to accept that consciousness can come in different forms and can be expressed in different ways, I would go as far as saying that, yeah, it, it makes sense to think that all living organisms have some form of consciousness that we are not ready to understand. We're not quite there yet. We're struggling enough just with trying to understand what consciousness is for human if trees along the years have been able to develop a, a, a communication system with the roots enabling them to alert some of their neighbors when there are bacteria uh, mushrooms or or viruses that could impact their survival i mean to me it blows my mind it's, it's just fantastic so 
I think is just the tip of the iceberg uh, to what we will learn in, in the next decades about, first of all, about forms of communication between uh, trees and other plants. And, and eventually that may lead to other findings for that uh, biological system, but also about animals. That's going to be very interesting. There's a lot of interest about what consciousness means in animals, especially for research in animals. So what's ethical? What can we do to animals that it's acceptable to move forward in finding new medicines for human beings? So what's the relation between pain, consciousness, uh, ethical research, and all that? There's there's a whole area and a bunch of researchers that are asking uh, themselves those questions that are uh, a little bit different than the questions we're talking about today, but it's another form of consciousness that some researchers are already looking into uh, to help accepting research projects to move forward, despite the fact that sometime there may be some pain associated with some techniques and all that. So going back to the book, do you want to tell us about some of the experiences in the book? After two episodes of cancer, I realized that it didn't make any sense anymore for me to live uh, my life the way I was living it, essentially with very little consciousness in it. I found myself very aggressive with people, but otherwise I had many struggles with social uh, relations, being mad very often for no particular reasons. And overall, just being sad, deep down inside. And that came from a number of incidents, some of which had more effect than others on me. Uh, for instance, I describe in the book that when I was uh, about nine or 10 years old, I was uh, almost uh, thrown in front of a, of a train in a metro station in Montreal by a bunch of boys that were just a few years older than me, whom I didn't know at all. They just showed up and wanted to see what could that do to, to throw someone in, in front of a train. Of course, that created a lot of uh, stress, a lot of anxiety for many years afterwards. In fact, I didn't even remember that was erased from my memory unconsciously for about, say, about uh, 30 years. And that came back to me slowly several decades later. Later on also, I was almost killed during my first trip in South America. I bumped into a bunch of guys who had guns, were either drunk or stoned. I wanted to solve a, a problem in between them and a client of mine. I was organizing that group for traveling in South America. So that was another quite uh, stressful, I would say, <laughs> event that led to additional fear of other human beings. What else? I've had uh, a few uh, near fatal accidents during uh, a road trip uh, across the U.S., also during trips in Germany where uh, highways have no speed limits. I was driving nearly at two, uh, 180, 200 kilometers per hour. And of course, I was not driving a Ferrari that could very well handle uh, that kind of speed. But I had a small uh, high-end uh, uh, with cheap tires. So when I think about it, those tires could have, could have blown away anytime. <laughs> that was but, a different trip than the one we took. Yeah, I, yeah, it was a different one. I was a uh, safe driver with you. Because I remember I was driving. It was a Hyundai of some kind. And I um, 
uh, I remember I was enjoying driving down the highway there. I think it was even a bit of a construction zone. I was going through at about 180 kilometers an hour or something like that. I forgot about that episode. <laughs> I just remember you you kind of saying, uh, Bernie, would you mind slowing down? <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of, of episodes like that I've been through in my life that further created stress, anxiety, that led to psychological pain and to social dysfunctions, I think, in my life. And, and automatically, you're being driven away from, from happiness, from inner peace, from serenity, yeah. if you're in that kind of a fear mode all the time. So right. I was getting to a point where... Uh, most human beings for me were a threat. I, I never knew where the next, <laughs> where the next uh, threat would come from. And sometimes the, the threat would come from me when driving a car at 200 kilometer per hour on, on the road. I mean, it's almost a suicidal act. Unconsciously, again, I never wanted to suicide myself. Retrospectively, when I think about all that, it was a profound psychological pain that that led to all that all those behaviors i was not continuously uh, expressing uh, those problems actually with very very good friends i was feeling that i was surrounded by good people right but for me those good people were like the five uh, fingers of my hands there were i had no more friends than three or four people so in other moments in, in my life or when I would go to work or I would be in public transportation or all sorts of circumstances, I would always be on my guard, ready to attack or defend myself, stressed out, ready to snap at any moment. And all those behaviors and reactions were totally out of control for me. They were all reflexes. Wow. So it's much later on that I realized that they were all reflexes because my rational brain, my non-ego part of my mental activities were almost never present, were never taking the place it's, it's, it deserves. So I was a, a reflex machine. <laughs> yeah. and, and my thoughts were influenced, my reactions, my emotions, all those things are controlled by mental activities. So if all that mental activity is driven by uh, ego, driven motivations or control I was reacting to the the pain I went through my lack of my lack of trust towards human beings my fear of hum, human beings and all that and then uh, it's just a reflex machine <laughs> and so how does neuroscience fit into that and and I mean again we all have fears to varying degrees let's say how does neurophysiology fit into that phenomenon and also dealing with that phenomenon as we we said very early on we are still struggling at identifying what consciousness is and neuroscientists are just beginning to investigate <clears throat> some of the activities in the brain that could be associated with consciousness where science has led to some progress is essentially behavioral neuroscience. So there's been a number of techniques, approaches that have been developed that we found can reduce stress, can reduce anxiety. So we know the impact of meditation on the reduction of stress and anxiety. That is essentially data and findings from behavioral neuroscience. So, but at the core of what the mechanisms are, we're still in the dark, truly.
unfortunately. So we know that there's a, a number of centers in the brain, such as the, the DAT area. It's a number of areas in the brain, including the thalamus, uh, the hypothalamus, the hippocampus, that are activated particularly, but not only uh, for that, but are particularly activated when we are aware of our environment. Okay. Um, and, and there are other areas like that in the brain that are particularly activated when we are, for instance, more focused on what's going on inside ourselves, such as during most of the meditation approaches, such as the MBSR approach uh, developed by Kabat-Zinn, that essentially consists in, in focusing on your breathing activity or every part of your, your body. And there's another set of neurons in the brain that are activated for that. So in, in the book, when you dissect and deconstruct the idea of having fear and in these experiences from, an, from a neuroscience point of view, what can people who are reading the book gain from that? Well, in the end, I'm trying to develop the idea that to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety, to reduce psychological pain, you have to increase your level of consciousness. One way to do it is standard meditation approaches. However, those meditation approaches are difficult, I would say, to practice on a regular basis. What I propose is a little bit like, you remember the, that publicity from uh, Nike, just do it. If you want to be more conscious, just do it. Right. So it has to be anytime, all day round. So yes. every behaviors that we have, every thoughts that we have, every emotion that we have is an opportunity to be conscious about it, to be more conscious. Uh -huh. So of course we cannot expect within 24 hours to be conscious of everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, but it should be a goal that we have to practice meditation uh, through movement, through everything we do uh, by a position to practicing meditation to increase consciousness only once a day if you're a pro like the Dalai Lama but for most people they just can't do it they just find the time 45 minutes per day to do it and the most people I've talked with actually all people I've talked with aren't able to think about their breathing properly more than one or two minutes for most methods of meditation to get started they ask you to be aware of your breathing during 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, which is a reason of failure for me, for most people. So yeah, instead of focusing on breathing, which is uh, just the tip of the iceberg of what consciousness is, we should just do it. When we're talking, we should be conscious about what we're saying, why we're saying it, the reaction of the person, the emotion it creates in us. We have to be aware of our body positioning when we're walking. We have to be in the here and now as often as we can. I think that's the take-home message I wanted to share with that book. Yeah, so you're, you're emphasizing the importance of being conscious, being in the moment, uh, and developing that practice on a regular basis. And are you giving some tips on how to do that? 
because for myself, for instance, you know, I studied martial arts at different times in my life. And so there was a certain amount of meditation in there and, and focusing on your breathing and delivering power and those sorts of things. So I, for decades, I've had this sort of off and on practice of meditating or consciousness. But now I sometimes I remember to be conscious when I'm walking and I look at the trees and I absorb everything around me and forget about the future and the past, right? Uh, think about my breathing and I actually do think about how my legs are working and those sorts of things. Uh, or I'll do the same thing with the eating meditation where I'll make sure that I'm really focused on the flavors and how the food is prepared and all that sort of items to be conscious of. But for the most part, I forget about it. Maybe I'll be waiting for an elevator and I'll think, okay, I've got, I've got 30 seconds here. So rather than get stressed out about the elevator, I'm going to just focus on my breathing yeah, yeah. and my posture and stuff. That's exactly, I think you're explaining it perfectly. The problem is to do it as often as we can because and we forget about it and the ego takes over very rapidly because it's a reflex. We, yeah. it's, it's easier to let the ego run the show than consciousness to run the show. So right. that's where training gets into play. Instead of using meditation as a, as a training 45 minutes, three times per week only for those who are good, five times for pros, and only once a year for most people, that won't do it. You won't increase consciousness this way. I think it's intuitive to, to realize that. So that's why we need to up we need to transform our understanding of the word meditation and to understand that meditation is anything that uh, any mental activity that we have that puts some consciousness into our into our sensation or into our behaviors into our uh, reactions uh, and for that you need you need knowledge you need to know things that are known there are many things that are don't yet know, known in the world but there are a number of things that are known uh, about the astrophysics it's important to know what's surrounding us outside planet earth because that um, may de-dramatize a number of things that happen to us that may create emotions that are not uh, necessarily good for our inner peace for our uh, joy um, it put things in perspective to see things at different scale. So we need to know what's going on at a larger scale, at our own scale, and even sometimes think and meditate about what may be the life of the, this insect passing by us. And uh, that's part of life as well. That's beautiful. And being in awe in front of all these expressions of life is another way to find a peaceful state of mind. What would you suggest is a good way of reminding ourselves? Personally, I'm thinking if I schedule, say, you know, maybe to start off 10 minutes, three times a week, or maybe to, or, or go on to, you know, an hour, five times a week, whatever it is, but schedule some time. And then at the, at the same time, when I see other opportunities, if I'm in the reception area of uh, an appointment I'm waiting for, for example, then there's other opportunities to develop that habit as well of being more conscious. Frankly, I don't know. It, I guess it may be different from one person to another, um, but I think one of the keys is motivation. If you're motivated to change, then you'll just be motivated to train at 
putting consciousness into everything you do and everything you feel. Right. So it's, it's mainly about changing your mindset mm-hmm. and putting things in perspective and realizing that that's probably the most important thing you, you can try to achieve in your life is to increase your consciousness level because everything depends on that. Otherwise, you'll be the victim of your ego, which will continuously perpetuate your pain, your stress, your anxiety, stress of the future, stress of losing your job and all that. But if you are putting consciousness into that and changing perspectives one way or another on on things that happen to you, that will just fade away. Mm -hmm. Normally, with time, (laughs) over time. (laughs) (laughs) It's a question of of doing it, doing it as often as we can. Of course, if something emergency happened, you have two, three, four kids at home, and there's one one is uh, crying for this thing, and the other one is asking you to, then of course, you're in the action reaction type of mode and and you're more more into the reflex mode but as soon as you can even washing dishes uh, cleaning the floor uh, those are all activities that could seem boring but if you put consciousness into it mm-hmm. well it becomes uh, an activity like any other and if you're doing it it's because there's a reason you chose to do it because you like a clean house yeah. um and 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 so you should be happy about it well, even, even if you have a mundane job or a mundane practice, like personally, I'm into swimming these days. I do a lot of swimming um, these days. And, and I'm constantly conscious when I'm swimming. Probably about 50% of the time, at least, I'm focused on how I can get more movement for my effort, how uh-huh. I can swim more efficiently, how I could breathe more efficiently. So I find that to be very therapeutic. Um, you know, for whatever it is, I, I swim for about 30 or 40 minutes. So for that time, I'm very focused on all those aspects and I'm forgetting about everything else. Much like when I was sailing a lot more, uh, you know, my sailing mentor said that that sailing is 95% boredom and 5% sheer terror. And to a certain degree, that's right. You know, what I would say about sailing is that it taught me to be patient because when you're out in the ocean and there's no wind, you know, here we're in a sheltered part of the ocean. So sometimes there's no wind, the boat's not moving. That's so terrible. Yeah, you have to sit and wait, right? So it teaches you to be patient. Yeah. Then the wind comes along and there's a lot of wind and you have to be running around the boat, adjusting sails, d- attacking, avoiding other other boats, right? It's For exciting, the... it's stressing, but but not the psychological stress we we're talking about. It's a... <laughs> well, once, once you know what you're doing as a sailor, even before that, it's taking all of your faculties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a survival thing. Yeah. Right? Because the wind's blowing that, you know, you have to make sure you don't hurt the people in the boat. The boom can come around, hit somebody in the head. So you, you're in charge of, you know, three or four passengers, let's say. And then you're also in charge of the boat and maintaining traffic. And so for that given amount of time, you are totally uh, uh, unaware of anything else except for yeah. the the yeah. moment is where you're in, right? During that time, it's a survival thing. Yeah. Right? And I'm not thinking, okay, I'm breathing and I'm enjoying the weather. I'm thinking, okay, how do I avoid hitting that rock? How yeah. do I keep the passengers safe? You know, this sorts of thing. Um, so, so I would argue, if I can, 
um, that in those times, uh, it's beneficial and, and probably really healthy to get out of your own head sometimes. I, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's almost, it's not an emergency situation, but you're in a, a small moment of crisis where things could turn bad. Yeah. You have to be, yeah, in, in the moment, in the action. And I agree with you, that would be very complicated to start adding a layer of mental activity to be conscious of what's going on, of everything's going, but there are so many things, the wind against your cheek, the, uh, the next step you have to make to either to turn left or right, to make sure nobody's falling in the water. Yeah, that's, but this being said, I agree with you, there are plenty of moments like that in our uh, daily lives. But um, as soon as we're out of those moments, we can, if we want to, be conscious again right. about uh, what we're thinking, uh, how we're moving. It's almost a, a sympathetic, yeah. parasympathetic nervous system type of comparison. Mm -hmm. The sympathetic, yeah, during that particular moment you were just describing. But uh, no, the, the parasympathetic system is not I don't know if that you, you were leading to that. The parasympathetic system is not responsible for consciousness expression. Oh, it's not? No, no, no. Because the sympathetic system uh, activated during a situation like that is not the same as the sympathetic system in the brain and the spinal cord. We have two uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Oh. And uh, those controlling muscles, heartbeat, uh, breathing rate, and all that, those are the peripheral uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, which is not to be mixed and associated with the ones that exist in our brain and spinal cord, because we have noradrenaline in our brain and spinal cord, but they're not associated with those motor behaviors or extreme case scenarios. The, the same chemical can be used for very different tasks in the body, whether depending on its localization in the brain or the body. Um, like there's dopamine in the brain, but there's some dopamine also in, in peripheral organs. They don't have this emission at all. So it was sim simpler for our body to come up with a limited number of drugs, of molecules, but to assign them different functions depending on where they are located and which cells they are in connection with. So it was, I guess, a wise thing to do instead of trying to develop a, a chemical or a neurochemical for every thing that is happening in our nervous, nervous system or body. We, we would have a, a long list of chemicals <laughs> floating how around. How many chemicals do we have now? Is there a number? Um, Good question. You mean in the brain? Yeah. Oof. There are about uh, what, 10 classical neurotransmitters that have been known for several decades, but now we're finding new ones okay. almost every year, but they are not anymore called classical neurotransmitters, but they are uh, neurochemicals that contribute to neural communications in between neurons. And these would be things so, like dopamine. So that's that's one example where yeah. when I was saying that there are just a limit, we're still very ignorant about 
almost uh, gross anatomy because I, I classified that as gross anatomy uh, of our body. There, we still don't know all the chemicals that are uh, used and because for each neurochemical, it will be metabolized by the body and gets into another form of chemical. Now we're finding that that other form of chemical that we taught for a long time that was just a waste byproduct, no, it has a function as well. And that byproduct is, de is degraded, is metabolized again in something else, another chemical. And that's a third level of degradation as also a function in our bodies. It's, we're getting into uh, a never ending story. <laughs> so, so some of those substances or chemicals, I guess, would include potassium and, and calcium, is that right? Those are not neurochemicals. They, they are used by the neurons for genera uh, generating uh, electric potential and, and okay. action potential for the communication between neurons. Right. The neuron is like a battery. There's a gradient of, uh, of uh, ions on one side and of other types of ions on the other side. That creates uh, an electric potential. Positive, negative. And then when there's a, a, a non-balance in that uh, in that stable potential that creates an action potential which which is the end product for communication between neurons right it's uh, uh, it would be easier for me to explain in french but <laughs> yeah no, sure that's the best i could do <laughs> that's all right if there's a, if there's a french word that you need translated as long as it's not too too scientific i could probably help you okay um <laughs> so that leads me to the question how important or beneficial is nutrition to the mm. functioning of the brain and the nervous system because mm. a lot of those things you're talking about right are found in nutrition too you know when you talk about potassium and calcium and yeah it's it's important of course and as most people know we cannot survive much if we don't drink for three or four days and we probably, <laughs> and we will have a hard time surviving if we don't eat between 10 and 20 days, depending on, on, on the person. So in the food, you'll get, of course, uh, minerals that are essential, like the potassium, the sodium, the calcium are essential, essential for many cells in the body, but, it's, but essentially for neurons, uh, for creating that potential we were talking about. But as far as being maniac about nutrition, thinking that it rules everything, the body can transform many things. Like um, if you think about it, a cow is, I mean, huge and filled with uh, skeletal muscles. It's impressive, but they don't eat meat. They eat grass. Yeah. So it the body can transform veggies into muscles if he has to. Of course, the body won't create calcium or essential elements like that. But I think there, are, there could be many ways to eat and uh, many diets that could be uh, appropriate without impairing uh, neural function significantly. I wouldn't be maniac about that and thinking that, oh, I have to be very, very careful about what I eat to be more conscious. Right. No, I wouldn't go that far now. So you would select your diet more for other things than for brain function, neural function. So you would select your well, diet. Well, it goes hand in hand. I mean, if you have 
a brain that functions normally or efficiently, you, ha you have to have a body that works normally and efficiently. So you have to have a, a balanced lifestyle. If you eat only once a day or once every second day, if you eat only chips and uh, mashed potatoes, of course, that won't do it. Uh, your body will eventually suffer. You'll have carences uh, and your, your brain will have also problems eventually. It's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going to happen. But the brain is not disconnected from the rest of the body. It's part of the body. If, if you suffer of uh, muscle wasting and osteoporosis, not because of age, but because of, of a nutrition problem, your, your brain will have consequences for sure. Okay. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly what would happen because it would probably depend from one person to another. And it's not some, something that is that studied in detail right now. But... There the brain and the rest of the body are not, not separate things. They work hand in hand. And what we eat affects all of our cells, not equally, but I mean, the brain cannot work perfectly if the body suffers of uh, carences and malnutrition and lack of water, even. The top uh, trainer of Olympic athletes in the world he used to say that uh, caviar was the, the meal of choice for the, the activity of your neurons, but equally for the activity of your uh, skeletal muscle cells. So for him, whenever he had a chance, he, he ate caviar. Okay. Um, this being said, I would say it's more important not to lose too much money on caviar, but to, to be careful in, in having a balanced diet, as you said, yeah, eating a little bit of everything. You want to balance it up with champagne, right? Exactly. <laughs> and good red wine. <laughs> yeah, I think balance is, is the key. Not being excessive in anything, not having a focus on a particular food or group of foods, but having a balanced diet and trying to eat as many things as possible, different things. So it sounds, it sounds like the, the takeaway is eat for your body, not for your brain. Yeah, because it's the same thing, actually. Yeah, it's connected. It's the, so yeah, it's totally it's connected. What's good for your body will be good for your brain. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You need to to find what makes your body happy uh, in in term of level of energy, and that will be communicated. Will will be transferred to your brain also, which will increase its its capabilities, and increase also perhaps your will to get into a new mindset for uh, personal growth and uh, increase of consciousness levels, which needs some motivation, which needs some, uh, some efforts. It needs focused time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but you need to think about it. You need to want it. You need to do it. I often think about this, this thing the Dalai Lama said one day. Uh, I mean, the guy practices meditation five or six hours a day, 365 days per year. So I would call it a pro. <laughs> okay. And even him, once in a while, he gets mad, meaning that he's not conscious anymore, simply when some of his employees don't do their job correctly. Right. So can you imagine thinking that we can reach really high level of consciousness all the time is utopic. And that I think is a good example. I mean, the guys... Yeah. The pro of the pros. <laughs> yeah. And he can do it all the time. I think the best thing we can do for ourselves and not set high, too high standards 
thinking that, oh, gee, I, I, I have not achieved it today. I was not conscious. Oh, don't blame yourself and do it one second at a time when you can. And yeah. if you're motivated, that training background will, will lead to something significant. Uh, I think you can get benefits from practicing that form of medication through movement or in the action or in the moment and you can get benefits very rapidly but to get highly significant benefits may take months or years and perfection doesn't exist yeah i would think that something like tai chi or yoga would be a great place to start it's like most things uh you know you don't want to go into the full ocean in a sailboat until you've learned how to how to at least leave the dock yeah (laughs) exactly yeah My recommendation would be the easiest way to start is with walking, exactly like you described. Right. Walking has the advantage over other meditation approach or being conscious of your muscles being contracted while you're walking, your body, body positioning, the wind on your, your cheek while you're walking, sounds around you while you're walking, all the stimulation you can get from your body and from around your body is the best way to start because you will never fall asleep when you're walking, which is not the case where you're into the lotus position, for instance, for many meditation approaches, they uh, propose to be in a comfortable position. The lotus position is sometimes a comfortable position for some people. But the problem is most of the time you fall asleep because you're not moving. If you want to be stimulated, have a higher level of mental activity and physical activity, well, you have to move. And that's, I think, the best approach for practicing meditation. It's when you're moving. Building on that, I think meditation could be used as a way to go to sleep, right? So sometimes if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep, I'll try and focus on nothing but taking 20 breaths and I usually fall asleep around seven or 12. <laughs> like I was saying, it's, it's very tough for most people to, to be uh, conscious yeah. of their breathing for more than one or two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is for sure. Well, thanks again for joining me and uh, for taking the time to do this. It was great talking with you, Bernie. And then okay, we'll talk again soon. Okay, sounds great, Pierre. Say hi to the family and we'll talk. To you. Okay. okay we'll Bye, Bernie. Ciao. Please check the show notes for links and details about Dr. Pierre's book, Eighth Chance at Enlightened Living for a Regular Guy. And that concludes this Bernie Chats. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, share, and feel free to comment. Thank you for supporting the channel. I look forward to seeing you on the next Bernie Chats.